spend this time there. So I have three points that I'm going to pull out from this psalm, and we'll get to these points in just a minute. But first, just a little reminder. Remember that this psalm, Psalm 85, was written first as a song. So the psalm was written as a song, and it even says that here at the beginning in my Bible, there's a little title that says, to the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. So to the choir master, obviously it's a it's supposed to be a choral song. So, in preparation for preaching today, I spent an hour on Spotify and typed in Psalm 85 and listened to all of the songs that have the title Psalm 85 in a variety of languages that I could find. And it was fun. And I would encourage you to do it. And my very favorite was by a men's choir from the Netherlands. And they, they sang Psalm 85 in Dutch along to a pipe organ. Here's a picture of the album cover. And I don't speak any Dutch, but since I knew they were singing Psalm 85, I could worship along with them. And uh, it was wonderful. Probably not a lot of Canadian men who are in their 40s would have chosen this song, but my musical tastes are a little unique. Um, there are, if you look on Spotify, uh, there are songs, song versions of this psalm in all sorts of different styles. There's Gregorian chant, like from a long time ago, and there's more modern worship kind of renditions. And so what I'd like to encourage you to do is sometime this week, go on Spotify or Apple Music or YouTube or wherever you listen to music, type in Psalm 85 in whatever language you speak, and listen to the songs, worship along with them, and then could you send me an email with a link to your favorite version, and I'll listen to it. I literally, I would love to receive 3,000 emails this week <laughs> of song versions of Psalm 85. So my email address, right there, jbestwillingdon.org, and I'm serious. Would you spend some time listening to this psalm, worshiping to it, and then send me your favorite version. So, why did I say that? By saying all that, what I wanted to remind you of is this. This psalm, and all psalms, were written first as a song to be sung and prayed regularly. And so, what this psalm does is it helps us remember the awesome works of God, and it also helps us to ask him to do them again and to do them more. And this type of prayer should be part of our regular worship and prayer life. The prayer for revival, this, this psalm is essentially a prayer for revival, should be a regular, normalized prayer for us. We need, we desperately need God to keep on breathing fresh life into us. And so we need to pray this type of prayer. So I'm going to pull out three main points. The points are these. Don't leave after I've listed them. I'm not done. I'm going to talk more about them, but they're these. Remember restoration. Request revival. And listen, learn, and live. So remember restoration. Request revival. Listen, learn, and live. So the first point is this. Remember restoration. So this psalm starts off with the first three verses as six 
quick declarations of things that God has done in the past. Now, there's some debate among people who like to debate such things about whether this psalm was written with a specific event in mind, um, like when Israel was released from Babylonian captivity and returned to Jerusalem, or whether it was written more generally to remind us that God has again and again restored and revived his people. Could be either. From my perspective, it doesn't really matter. The message remains the same. So what do we see in these first three verses? We see declarations that God has restored and forgiven his people. There's six statements, like I said before, quick succession. They all start with the word you, and it's referring to God. So let me just read it. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. So these first three verses are jam-packed with declarations of the marvelous things that God has done for the nation of Israel. And they also foreshadow what God will do through Jesus. So in case you're new to the Bible, this psalm was written before the time of Jesus. But this psalm foreshadows or talks about what will happen through Jesus. So these verses are talking about what God did for Israel, but they're also talking about exactly what Jesus ends up doing for all people, not just the nation of Israel. So one of the core things that the Bible talks about is that in order for sinful people to be reconciled to God, some sort of payment needs to be made for the sin. That's one of the things that the Bible talks about. And in the Old Testament, there, there was a system of sacrifices that needed to be made in order for sins to be atoned for, in order for sins to be covered and paid for. And so there's a chapter in Leviticus, uh, it's Leviticus chapter 16, which is a whole chapter, it's titled The Day of Atonement, and it has a whole bunch of uh, regulations and rules and sacrifices that you need to make for, for sins. Well, the good news is that through Jesus, we no longer need to live under this sacrificial system that's outlined in Leviticus 16. We no longer need to live in a state of separation from God because, and uh, here's the core message of a theological term called substitutionary atonement. It's this, Jesus took our sin upon himself and he sacrificed himself and paid our debt. All of it, for all time. And so now we can be in right relationship with God and this is really, really, really good news. So this is what these verses, these first three verses are pointing toward. Our sins are covered, God's wrath is withdrawn, our iniquities are forgiven, all through Jesus. And that's the good news. That's really good news. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is Isaiah chapter 53. And like this psalm that we're looking at, it's another one of the passages that foreshadows what Jesus will do. So it's written before the time of Jesus, but it foreshadows what Jesus will do. And I'm just going to read a few of the verses from Isaiah chapter 53. If you know Handel's Messiah at all, that musical piece, you'll recognize a few songs that were written from this chapter. 
says this, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. And we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Jesus has taken our sin and paid the necessary sacrifice in order for us to be able to be reconciled to God. This is great news. Charles Spurgeon, who was a thoughtful and famous British preacher from the 1800s, said this about our sin as he commented on Psalm 85. He said, all of it, all of our sin, all of it, every spot and wrinkle, the veil of love has covered all. Sin has been divinely put out of sight. The Lord has put it so completely away that even his omniscient eye sees it no more. What a miracle this is. To cover up the sun would be easy work compared with the covering up of sin. Not without a covering atonement is sin removed. But by means of the great sacrifice of our Lord Jesus, it is most effectually put away by one act forever. What a covering does his blood afford. Well, what do these first three verses do? They help us remember the restoration that God has done in the past. They remind us of our salvation, that we've been forgiven, and I think that this kind of practice in prayer is really helpful. I don't know about you, but I tend to have what I refer to as a really short spiritual memory. I need to keep my connection to God consistent. It's way too easy for me to forget the amazing things that God has done, to start relying on myself instead of on the Holy Spirit for strength and direction and slipping into sin. It's way too easy. So I don't know if this image will be helpful for you or not, but I've often thought of my life as a tetherball. I don't know if you know, this okay, this is tetherball. Here's a picture of it. Uh, I played some tetherball last weekend. It's fun. My basic assessment is this. It's painful. Uh, it's hard, it's scary, and it's fun. Pretty sure I didn't win. I can't quite remember. But let me tell you about this image. So I'm the ball. I'm that yellow ball, or you're the ball. The pole is God. And the rope between the ball and the pole is my connection to God. The smacker, the thing that makes my, the ball move around, is any external pressure that could move me further away from God. Or maybe it's temptation to sin, maybe it's the busy demands of life, maybe it's some conflict or even some good-sounding project that will move me away from God. But here's what I want you to imagine. Imagine if somebody smacks the ball and the rope breaks. What happens? Well, the ball flies far away from the pole. So if we're the ball and if God is the pole, we don't want to be flying away from God. So we need to work at keeping our connection 
with God, strong and current. Taking the image one step further, when a tetherball gets hit, the rope actually wraps around the pole and brings the ball closer to the pole. And so it could be the same thing with us and God. It should be. As we get hit in life, if we're well-connected to God, we should actually draw closer to Him. So that's why I like to think of my life as a tetherball. Um, just a quick disclaimer, I'm guessing that many of you will try to find a playground today and find a tetherball pole because it's super fun, but it's just a little bit dangerous, so be careful, okay? So why was I talking about tetherball? These kind of remembering declarations of things that God has done can keep us closely connected to God. And so if you have a short spiritual memory like I do, repeating the things that God has done for you can be a really helpful practice. They'll help keep the rope that connects us to God strong and secure. So that was my first point. Remember restoration. Remember the amazing things that God has done. Second point is this. Request revival. So the section we're going to look at here is from verses 4 to 7. And these are pleas for God to do the powerful work again that he has done in the past. Restore us again, O God of our salvation. Put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? And this is the core prayer of the psalm. Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord. Grant us your salvation. Restore us again. Put away your indignation toward us. Revive us again that your people may rejoice in you. Show us your steadfast love. Grant us your salvation. This is a prayer for revival. Revival. So what is revival? Well, it's the bringing back to life of something that was once alive or flourishing but is no longer alive or flourishing. It means to refresh, to restore, to reinvigorate, to bring back to life. A couple of images might help you grasp what revival is. First, uh, you can probably all relate to this these days. When the grass has turned really brown in the summertime because it's hot and dry, and then in the fall, when the weather gets cooler and the rains come, the grass turns green and starts to grow again, right? So something that was dead has come to life. It's been revived. Or maybe you've got a plant that you've neglected and it's wilted, but with some care, it begins to flourish again. Or revival, maybe even more obviously, would be when a paramedic encounters somebody who has died and gives them CPR and they come back to life. Or maybe somebody has been... Uh, unconscious or in a coma and they regain consciousness. That's what revival is. Well, in a spiritual sense, revival is God reigniting our relationship with him. So refreshing our wilted lives, breathing new breath into our spiritual lives when we have stopped breathing. That's what this is a prayer for. So you might have a couple of questions. One would be, when should we pray this type of prayer? And another might be, for whom should we pray this type of prayer? Well, when should we pray this type of prayer? Really, all the time. When we remember something great that God has done, let's pray, Lord, do it again. When we feel under a dark cloud in our culture, let's pray, revive us and revive our nation. 
When we feel dull or discouraged personally, let's pray, Lord, revive me and restore in me the joy and the peace that I have experienced in you in the past. So this prayer for revival is a prayer that we should pray abundantly, liberally, generously, regularly, all the time, really. So that's when we should pray it. For whom should we pray it? Well, for ourselves, for our church family, for our city, for our nations, I would say. Let's start with ourselves and with our church family. In the great historical revivals, if you read church history, God has generally first done his reviving work among his own people, the church. He's brought the church to life in a fresh way, and then broader transformation flows out of that. So broad revivals generally start with those of us who already have a relationship with Jesus being brought back to life afresh by the living God. So what does a revived life look like? What does it look like? I think Psalm 85 actually gives us some hints. We know who God is and consistently remind ourselves of the great things he has done. We listen to the Lord speaking to us. I'm going to talk about that in just a minute. We listen through scripture, through his spirit, through his people, through the joys and challenges of life. We accept and embrace his peace. We turn away from folly with the Lord's help. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. And then we encounter God's attributes of love and faithfulness and righteousness and peace. And we not only encounter these characteristics of God, but we also see the Holy Spirit growing these more within our own lives. And then, as we are transformed, we will actually be able to be points of influence in our culture and in our circles of influence. So we can pray for revival for ourselves and for our church family, but, but it mustn't actually stop there. We also need to pray for our nation and for our nations. This psalm actually is a psalm, it's a prayer for national revival. The psalmist wants Israel as a nation to come back to life. And how we know this is that we can see his use of plural a lot. Restore us. Revive us. Like, let's do this. Lord, would you do this to us as a nation? So he's pleading with the Lord for the nation of Israel to experience a fresh breath of life from the Lord. And we can use this as a model for our own prayers. Let's pray for Canada and for our countries of origin in similar ways. Our nations need revival. Without exception, each one of the 195 or so nations in this world desperately needs a touch from the living God. And so we can participate in that by praying for revival. In this psalm, the core prayer, I've already said it, is verse 6. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Will you not revive us again? that your people may rejoice in you. Let me tell you what real success would be uh, in this preaching moment. It would be this. If some of us started to make this prayer a daily prayer in our own lives. Let me say it a different way. A month from now, you're not going to remember many of the points, probably any of the points that I've made. You might remember the tetherball image if you're a visual learner. But that's probably about it. But... What if today you decide to pray this prayer? Lord, would you revive me again? Would you revive us again? What if you decide to pray it every day over this next month? 
It could change your life forever, honestly. I'll do it with you. How about that? I've got an alarm set for 9.30 each evening. Uh, there's a screenshot of my phone. 9.30 p.m., pray for revival. Two exclamation marks. <laughs> and and uh, that's what I'm going to do. You don't have to join me at 9.30 if that's a bad time for you. But would you consider praying each day this month? I'm not talking about July. I'm talking about the entirety of August. Um, for revival. That could change our lives. So my first point was this, remember restoration, remember great things that God has done. My second point is this, request revival, let's pray for revival a lot. And that brings me to the third point, listen, learn, and live. So from verse 8 on, there's this really interesting interplay between God and the person who's praying the prayer. We're invited to receive something from God, to enjoy it, and to also be transformed. We're also invited to be engaged in relationship with God. So let me show you what I mean. God does the life-giving work of revival, of salvation, of forgiving our sins. We can't do it. God does that work. He does this internal transformation for us. But we're invited to participate in a relationship with God. So in verse 8, it says this, let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. So there's an expectation here that God will speak. But in order to hear him, we need to listen. How do we do that? I've found that the best listening happens in an uninterrupted conversation with minimal distractions. I think I actually struggle a little bit with listening well to people, say nothing about listening to God. I'm pretty easily distracted. Um, my wife, Christy, who knows me better than anyone else knows me in this world, um, sometimes is having a conversation with me, and all of a sudden she'll stop because... I've got this look on my face that she knows, and it's, I'm pretending to listen. Like, I'm not, I'm not actually listening. And she knows this look. I might be smiling and nodding. I might even be able to repeat the last sentence that she said if I'm lucky. Or, but, but my mind has been somewhere else. I've been dreaming of skiing, or I've been thinking about something that's causing me stress, or I've maybe even been formulating the, la the next response that I'm going to give to Christy. And so she stops talking and says something like, you're not listening. Actually, I have no idea what she says because I'm not listening. But um, <laughs> then sometimes I feel like I've been caught in some grand deception, and so I apologize and I re-engage. Um, sometimes I try to convince her that I was listening. It doesn't work. She knows that I'm not. And uh, it rarely fools her. So, so this happens in our home a little bit more than once a week. I'll say, <laughs> I'll say that quite regularly. Uh, why am I telling you this? Because this says to listen to God. And I like what Charles Spurgeon says. Charles Spurgeon, who I quoted a little earlier, he says, the true attitude for a sinner to take in the presence of divine revelation is that of a listener. To enter the place of a doer before you've occupied that of a listener is to reverse God's order and throw everything into confusion. So how do we listen to God? Well, 
spend time with him. Find a time and a space and a way to engage with God without distraction. Maybe stop talking. When I pray, too often I'm just talking to God. And then I miss the incredible opportunity to listen to what God wants to say to me. For me, some key practices are these. Spend time reading the Bible regularly. I like to journal my thoughts and my prayers to the Lord, and then, and then sometimes I'll have a clear sense that God is saying something to me, and I'll write that down too. I like to connect with God in nature, and finding time to be alone with Him in nature is significant. Uh, side note, two of my favorite spots that we've been this summer as a family, I own a beach by the airport at sunset, I would highly recommend it, or Mount Baker, Artist Point, I was there yesterday, fabulous if you want an awesome mountain opportunity. But over the past few years, one of my favorite places for connecting with God has been sitting beside the Fraser River under the Mission Bridge. Here's a picture. This is where I like to sit. And uh, God has spoken good things to me there. He's spoken peace. He's given strength. He's reminded me of who I am and of who He is. This verse, verse 8, says, Let me hear what the Lord will speak. He'll speak peace to his people. God will speak peace. Philippians 4, 7 says this, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I'm guessing most of us would benefit from a fresh experience of God's gift of peace. It's so easy and so natural to get wrapped up and riled up in life, isn't it? Life can be hard, life can be stressful, it can be challenging. So part of our privilege and our responsibility is to listen to God, and He will speak peace. But then in verse 8, at the end, there's a warning that if we're honest, we can all relate to. It says, but let them not turn back to folly. Let them not turn back to folly. What does that mean? Folly is another word for sin, for doing wrong things. And this verse has the idea that we are pretty eager to do these things even after we've experienced God's restoration. I'm guessing all of us can relate to this. The Apostle Paul could in Romans seven nineteen. It says this, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So, God has spoken to his people. God has done all sorts of restoration. God has restored and revived. God has even granted salvation. But even after all of that, we still need this prayer to not turn back to folly. Have you experienced how wildly easy it is to have great intentions about living how God wants us to live, and then you mess it up? This is the common human experience. You'd be surprised how often I say to myself, stop being an idiot, or don't do something stupid. I can so easily forget the awesome things that God has done for me, and in me, and through me, and I choose to sin. The psalmist, the guy who wrote this, knows that this is our basic human propensity, and that we desperately need the transforming work of the Holy Spirit.
Without the Holy Spirit's inner transformation, we aren't really going to be able to change. And so this psalm really wisely adds this to the prayer. Lord, we know who you are. We know what you've done. And we're so thankful. But even so, we actually aren't strong enough to change ourselves much. We desperately need you. And we need your protection and your transformation. And then we come to a really interesting poetic image in verses 10 and 11. It says this, Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground. Righteousness looks down from the sky. It's kind of like God shows up in full force with his attributes of love and faithfulness and righteousness and peace, and they take up all the space in our view. So righteousness and peace kiss. Just imagine this with me. Righteousness and peace kiss. So that captivates the view right in front of us. Love and faithfulness meet. And then there's faithfulness springing up from the ground and righteousness looking down from the sky. It's very interesting imagery. So above and below, in every direction we look, we see and experience this God who has forgiven, restored, and revived us. We experience the love and peace and faithfulness and righteousness of Jesus in a tangible way. And he's eager to have us live our lives in a way that's so captivated by his love and by his goodness that these are the main things that we see. When that happens, we'll start to be transformed into his likeness, reflecting his character and following his lead. And this brings us to the last verse. Verse 13 says this, Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Or another translation says, Righteousness shall go before him and shall set us in the way of his steps. And shall set us in the way of his steps. So we've experienced the salvation that's offered through Jesus. We've heard God, and he's spoken peace. He's revived us. He's shown us his truth and his steadfast love and his righteousness and his peace. And now we get to follow him as he leads the way. I, the image that I have in my mind is of the final scene in the movie The Sound of Music with, here, there it is, Christopher Plummer up there. Captain Von Trapp is leading his family up one of the Austrian Alps as they escape. Well, I have that image as I think of God leading me or leading us. Jesus wants to lead us every step of our lives, whatever challenges or opportunities may come. Well, I've given you a little bit of a checklist along the way. You may or may not have realized that. But first, if you come across some moving musical version of Psalm 85, I would love to hear from you and have you send it to me. Seriously. My email address is on the screen again here, jbest at willingdon.org. might take me a while to respond if I get 3,000 emails, but go for it. And, uh, but just enjoy that worship experience. Second, I've invited you to join me in praying for revival every day for a month. Would you do that? It could be life-changing. And I also came up with this backpack 
And uh, would you spend some time praying for Iran specifically? There's lots of stuff happening in Iran these days politically and it's traumatic, but one of the things that's happening that is fabulous is the church has come to life in a fresh way. But would you pray that that would continue to happen? And also mark your calendars for the 26th of August when we'll have a Love Our City Day. Well, when I think of Willingdon Church and when I think of this church family experiencing a fresh, life-inducing touch from the Spirit of God, I imagine us being revived, and then I imagine the thousands of us then being like sprinklers or fertilizer or shade on a lawn that's brown because it has been scorched. I imagine God's Spirit flowing through us in a way that brings God's new life to our city and to our nation and to our nations. Uh, The grass around my house right now is pretty brown, but I know that it's not a hopeless cause. I know that when the weather cools and when the rain comes, the grass will become green again and it will start to grow. Well, the grass in our city and in our nation and in our nations, the spiritual health is pretty brown these days. But I know that, like my lawn, this isn't a hopeless cause. We desperately need a fresh reviving from God. And I believe that this this new life can happen in our own lives, in our church family, and in our city, and in our nations. So let's pray to that end. Uh, For this next few moments, uh, we've often, at the end of the sermon, had a few reflection questions up. What we're going to do instead is I'm simply going to invite you to pray on your own for revival. And we'll have three minutes. Pray for yourselves that the Lord would revive you. Pray for our church family. Pray for this city. Pray for our nation. Pray however the Lord might lead you. So I invite you to enter into prayer, and then we'll sing some more. God bless you.